Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. This is season eight, episode three. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining us once again for Seeing Red. Woohoo! Uh, thanks also to our most recent Patreon supporters. I'll name them, Bethan. I might get them wrong. Do you uh, know what? I have, I have been like hogging this section for a while, haven't I? So fair enough. Yeah, because I've enjoyed humiliating you. Uh, so we have Lauren Melling, Hannah Cullen, Gail Shepherd, Cassie Morrison, Laura Quinn, Tamsin, Claire S and Stephen James. Thank you to all of you. Thank you to all of our existing Patreon supporters as well. We have so much going on over at Patreon. We have just done our book club, haven't we, Bethan? We With did. the one and only Colin, Colin Sutton. Sutton. Uh, so he came along, we discussed his book, Manhunt, uh, the first one. I can't remember what it was actually called. Um, we are also going to be discussing his second book, which is The Night Stalker. And that's in November. That's our Patreon book club. And Colin has confirmed for that as well. I think it's on the 18th of November. So he's coming along to that, uh, which will be fascinating to hear his inside story on on that case. Yeah, it was just called Manhunt. So you weren't that far off, really. You oh, just, okay. I think you were expecting something more. I think the tagline was how I brought serial killer Levi Belfield to justice or something along those lines. But um, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was pretty much just called Manhunt. Yeah. But yes, a huge thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Yeah, thank you very much. If you want to join these guys, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up and your support over there for us and the show honestly means that we are still here nearly 200 episodes in. So it means so much to us. Okay, so uh, we are in a hospital setting, Bethan, for episode three of season eight. How do you feel about that? I quite like the first idea. First time. It's not the first, first time? time because we looked at the case of Beverly Allett way back in season one, I think that was. Um, but we haven't, I don't think, really looked at any cases like this again. And it's going to be horrible, isn't it? Because it's going to make you think about all the times that you've been in hospital or had to have treatment or somebody you love has. It's quite a, yeah, I don't know, it's quite a horrible idea. So I'm intrigued. I think it's one of the worst ideas. And I know we talked about Jimmy Savile very recently. And we talked about, obviously, his uh, activities in various hospitals around the country and just how vulnerable you are when you're in hospital. So, yeah, I think it's something that will resonate with, with each and every one of us. So if you've ever been treated in hospital, then you will, of course, know that a tremendous amount of trust is placed into the hands of the medical professionals who are charged with your care. After all, these people are rigorously trained to provide you with the highest quality of care at times when you are your most vulnerable. Some medical professionals have even sworn the Hippocratic Oath, a physician's pledge to prescribe only beneficial treatments according to his abilities and judgment, to refrain from causing harm or hurt, and to live an exemplary personal and professional life. And there's not many medical professionals I know that could say the last bit, perhaps, but I always oh, find... Oh, that's a bit any, cheeky of you. Oh, only because any nurses I've known in the past have always been like massive drinkers and have been people that have sort of taken drugs off the ward to help with their hangovers, which is oh my horrific. God. Uh, that's an old friend I had who I'm not friends with anymore, not for any bad reason. But yeah, I think they're all caners really, but I might be wrong. Interesting. I don't know many medical professionals but the ones I do know seem to be quite nice so maybe we just mix in different circles 
Possibly, yeah. I do, I do, I do tend to attract these people. Um, so to put it another way, I suppose, they are supposed to be the good guys, the ones we turn to when we're sick or in pain or falling apart mentally, of course. When COVID ripped its way through the UK between 2020 and early 2022, society as we knew it was turned on its head. The socio-economic and emotional fallout from the pandemic will be felt for generations to come. However, as we know, it was the heroic bravery and ironclad commitment of our NHS doctors and nurses who kept the majority of the UK population alive and well throughout that entire nightmarish chapter in our history. And it's not just the doctors and nurses, it's the pharmacists, it's supporters, the cleaners, every single person involved in the running of an NHS hospital. As tempting and as comforting as it might be to believe that all public sector workers are wonderful individuals who could never even dream of doing you harm, this week's episode is a stark reminder that this isn't always the case. Where there are heroes, there are villains. Where there are angels, there are also demons. Trust is a fragile thing that can easily be placed into the wrong hands. This has always been the case and the NHS unfortunately is no exception to this rule. Today's case begins in Stockport, a large town in Greater Manchester which is situated seven miles southeast of Manchester city centre. Stepping Hill Hospital is the largest medical hospital in the Manchester area and was first established as the Stepping Hill Poor Law Hospital in December 1905. The facility was used as a military hospital during both world wars, after which it merged with the NHS and became the Stepping Hill Municipal Hospital and that was in 1948. Stepping Hill is still to this day run by the NHS and is described as a medium-sized general hospital that offers somewhere in the region of 800 beds and employs over 4,000 medical staff, around 500 of which are specialist doctors such as GPs, physicians and surgeons, whilst the other 3,500 or so consist mainly of general registered nurses. Upwards of half of all patients who visit the facility daily are classed as elderly. For many years, Stepping Hill enjoyed a sterling reputation as a clean, well-managed and accessible medical facility run by caring, highly trained professional staff. But in the summer of 2011, its reputation took a battering when the hospital descended into what can only be described as a kind of hell on earth as it became the hunting ground for a ruthless serial killer. This is sounding so fascinating already and... I don't think I know this case or anything, and so, I mean, maybe I'll be, maybe I will realise I know this, but I don't feel like I do. So this is going to be one of those episodes again, which I always enjoy because it takes me back to being just a listener of podcasts, and I get to listen to you tell me a case. And oh, it's going to be horrible, though. I I can't imagine this is going to be one that's going to be easy listening. No. Um, I must admit, though, it's great to be back in Manchester for an episode because all of the episodes that we've ever covered that have taken place in Manchester have been particularly fascinating. So things like the Manchester Canal Pusher, um, and we've done uh, various cases around gang warfare in Manchester as well. Um, So they've always been super interesting, and, and this is no exception. So, suspicions were first aroused on the 27th of June in 2011, when 68-year-old Manchester resident Josephine Walsh was admitted to Ward A3 after developing complications from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. When Josephine was initially admitted to the hospital, she was undoubtedly very ill, but otherwise conscious, coherent and aware of her surroundings. 
She wasn't considered an emergency patient, but she was admitted, she was given a bed and she was put on observation. Not long afterwards, for no clear reason whatsoever, Josephine was discovered by hospital staff slumped in a chair, rapidly losing consciousness, having gone into hypoglycemic shock. This was remarkably strange. Ms Walsh had no diabetic history and no history of hypoglycemia either. Now, hyperglycemia is usually attributed to people with diabetes, and it's caused by a sudden and unsustainable drop in blood sugar, along with a sudden spike in the body's insulin levels. Insulin is a hormone made by the pancreas that allows your body to use sugar from carbohydrates for energy. For a healthy person, the body can self-regulate its own insulin levels, so we never really have to worry about it. But if the body is no longer able to do this and starts to produce too much, hyperglycemia can occur. And that's a potentially fatal condition that can cause the body to go into shock. People experiencing hyperglycemia often experience headaches, dizziness, sweating, shaking and a feeling of anxiety. And I couldn't resist but say a little joke here because, I mean... That's usually me on a Sunday morning when we record, <laughs> isn't it, Beth? And not hyperglycemia, just a bit of a hangover. Yeah. So Do you know what? I was so thinking similar. to myself, can I make a joke or not? And then I was like, oh, is that in too bad taste? But no. And the fact that you didn't have a drink last night means that you're actually feeling quite alert. I was like, oh, gosh. Exactly. Yeah. This is the most alert I've probably ever been in 100 episodes. Um, so it's the only joke we'll make, I promise. Um, so if hyperglycemia isn't treated promptly and urgently, the condition can lead to loss of consciousness and brain damage, swiftly followed by death. Thankfully, Josephine was discovered by staff in good time and they were able to administer an urgent glucose treatment to bring her back to a stable condition. Nevertheless, the doctors and nurses who attended to her were mystified and a little troubled as well. Just how had Josephine, who had no history of diabetes, ended up going into hyperglycemic shock in the first place? A brief internal investigation into the incident was carried out, but no evidence was found to suggest that anything untoward had taken place. Even though the event couldn't be definitively explained, Josephine was expected to survive the ordeal, so the hospital opted not to alert the police or to take any further action. And I guess these kinds of things do happen from time to time, things in a hospital environment that can't necessarily be explained, but actually there's no major consequences. It's a busy environment, there's patients to treat, so you just kind of crack on. Mm, Yeah, and without there being any sort of pattern or multiples, it's just an odd, unexpected, unusual event that's really, really, really shitty, but you're working in an environment where sometimes people get sick and die and it's like frustrating for those and it's really sad for those staff members and then they have to see families dealing with stuff that's horrendous but it is also their job on the daily yeah yeah and like i guess for any of us that's kind of impossible to understand but yeah they they'll have procedures in place to say well do we alert the police right now or not and there clearly wasn't the right time No, I would say protocol was followed and boxes were kind of ticked and it wasn't deemed that that was necessary. But that's not to say that the staff involved in Josephine's care weren't a little bit uneasy about this still. The circumstances surrounding the incident were extremely unusual and they didn't make any sense. So something definitely didn't feel right. But this was just the beginning. 
Just over a week later, on the 7th of July in 2011, 44-year-old mother of two, Tracy Arden, a multiple sclerosis sufferer, inexplicably died after going into sudden hyperglycemic shock just two hours after her parents had left her bedside, believing that she was responding well to treatment. Once again, Ms Arden was not diabetic and had never had any previous instances of hyperglycemia. This event further unnerved medical staff on the ward, who now suspected there was something untoward occurring, but were just unable to prove it. This does remind me a little bit with the Beverly Alec case, and so similar. as things are kind of starting to be almost a pattern and stuff, it's just, that is really scary. Yeah, and can you imagine working on those wards, Mm -hmm. thinking something's going on, but they might not have had suspicions about anybody at this point. It could have just been, is there an issue with cleanliness in this hospital? Are the saline bags sterile? Has there been a a contamination somewhere? Mm. So that's probably what they were considering, Mm. I think. Yeah, and but you'd also have that kind of nervousness of, in the back of your head, like, what if this is on purpose like surely as a well maybe not actually because we're true crime fans aren't we so maybe that would be why but they might have that worry maybe but also like i think i'd definitely have the worry of oh crap what if i've done something wrong i'd be second guessing every decision i make even though i knew i hadn't yeah i'd be exactly the same Just two days after this, on the 10th of July in 2011, all hell broke loose on Ward A1 at Stepping Hill. It began with an incident that was frighteningly similar to that of Josephine Walsh. A former cancer patient in his 50s, who was visiting the hospital with mild cellulitis, suddenly and inexplicably went into hyperglycemic shock and very nearly lost his life. That same evening, a 41-year-old male was admitted to Ward A1 after taking an overdose of painkillers. After being treated, the medical staff who attended to him felt confident that his condition wasn't life-threatening and that he was expected to make a fast and complete recovery. As a precaution, he was kept on the ward overnight under observation. However, several hours later, nurses discovered that the man was having a seizure and was suffering from what appeared to be a hyperglycemic shock. He was on the brink of death and had to be given urgent life-saving treatment immediately. He survived the ordeal but fell into a coma and suffered an irreversible brain injury as a result of his advanced state of hyperglycemia. Which makes me so sad because this is obviously a desperate man who has attempted to take his life in a desperate situation and has received treatment at hospital, would have gone on to make a full recovery and hopefully mentally also, but has been left with a brain injury as a result of this. As that night unfolded, three further serious incidents occurred that involved patients going into hyperglycemic shock. Out of these five cases, only one of the patients was diagnosed as diabetic, but none of them had any history of hyperglycemia. Later that night, one of the unexpected hyperglycemia patients, 71-year-old Arnold Lancaster, very sadly passed away. No medical professional worth their salt could have chalked that evening's events up to sheer coincidence or bad luck. Something was clearly going very wrong on the ward that night. Foul play wasn't suspected immediately. Instead, in the early morning hours of July the 11th, medical staff at Stepping Hill began inspecting all of their equipment, looking for a possible source of contamination. Within hours, a nurse came forward to report that an ampule of saline solution that she was about to administer to a patient appeared unusual. The nurse noticed that the liquid looked slightly misty and had developed a soaky-looking foam at the top. 
On closer inspection, the bag itself also had a tiny puncture in it and seemed to be leaking. And that is the really oh my shocking God, yeah, part that's, of this. That's terrifying, isn't it? That's a needle. Staff went to the treatment room where the ward supply of saline ampules was stored to inspect the rest of their stock and were horrified to discover that almost all of their saline ampules were in a similar state. Misty coloured saline solution with foam at the top contained in ampule bags that had the same tiny puncture that looked to have been caused by a hypodermic needle being driven through the plastic. The liquid that dropped from the tiny incision hole had a sweet, fruity-like odour and that's a dead giveaway for contamination. Waves of fear and panic swept across the hospital staff. This discovery not only confirmed that they had been administering contaminated saline solutions to their patients, but the puncture wounds strongly indicated that someone had done this intentionally. But who and why? As tensions continued to rise, more and more uncomfortable questions came up. Was this emergency limited to just Stepping Hill Hospital, or was the entire country's supply of saline now contaminated? Should other hospitals be warned about the crisis at the risk of causing widespread panic? What was to be done about the dozens of patients throughout the hospital who were, at that very moment, attached to potentially lethal saline drips? It was considered impossible for a hospital the size of Stepping Hill to run without the use of saline. Saline is the unsung hero of modern medical practices. Doctors use it to replenish lost fluids, flush wounds, deliver medications and to sustain patients through surgery, dialysis and chemotherapy. James Catania, who was the medical director of Stepping Hill Hospital at the time of this crisis, immediately ordered that all remaining saline ampules in the entire building be removed with immediate effect and replaced with new stocks of saline, but with strict controls placed on their usage. The storage room where the saline was kept was to be always kept locked. Any medical professionals who needed saline had to sign a specially made register and could only take the saline if there was another member of staff present to witness it. In the meantime, doctors had gathered up several samples of the contaminated saline solutions and sent them off to a nearby quality assurance lab for an urgent analysis. They wanted to know what exactly they were dealing with. God, can you imagine, like... This is the kind of things that you have in place for serious, serious drugs. Not saline, which you just expect to just be there all the time. And I was going to say like, that, yeah. I use it when I'm, because I wear contact lenses. I literally have a bottle of it to pour into my eyes. Like it's just the most common thing. Like it's just clean and like, it's, it's just ridiculous. Well. Yeah, this is absolutely crazy. And so all of these medical professionals then, not only are they worrying and, concentrating on other things they're then also having to follow loads of extra procedures as well god this must have made a really hard time for them yeah for them working yeah it would have been incredibly frustrating and you're right they would they would be used to signing out things like diamorphine under dual control Mm -hmm. but fucking saline that's just day-to-day unharmful substance that is used so much by the 12th of july the lab had finished their analysis and presented their findings to the hospital The results were horrifying, but not altogether too surprising. All of the sabotaged ampules had been deliberately contaminated with potential lethal doses of synthetic insulin. This killer had injected more than enough insulin into the saline bags to ensure that the victim would go into shock and very probably die from that. By now, it had been more than 48 hours since the first reported case of unexpected hyperglycemic shock and the chaos in the wards continued. 
the number of suspicious emergency hypoglycemic incidents had now risen to 12, and sadly two people had died as a result. Greater Manchester Police were alerted, and Stepping Hill Hospital now had become a major murder scene. I wonder how much um, people on the wards or patients were aware of anything as well, because whether or not you'd like hear any sort of whispers and be thinking to yourself, what's going on? Would you notice that the staff seemed particularly stressed and worried or or were they doing really well with just keeping it between staff and not? I just, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you could just imagine like a nurse just mentions one thing, but a patient knows enough to kind of guess. I don't know, like, oh, it's just horrible to think of. Yeah, to have that niggling doubt as a patient that something's up and that you're extremely vulnerable. They may have they may have been able to hide it, who knows. Um, so the first and by far the most daunting challenge that the investigators were faced with was the sheer number of people that could have been involved in this. Tens of thousands of people, staff and civilians, passed through Stepping Hill Hospital each day and it can quite literally be as busy as a London shopping centre. There was no pre-existing security protocol surrounding the safekeeping of the hospital's saline supplies and the storage rooms where they were kept were rarely ever locked, because why would they be? But this meant that literally anyone could have wandered in off the street and sabotaged those saline supplies with relative ease, and that's really worrying, isn't it? Do you know That's such a good point, because yeah, like why would they be under, like we just said, why would they be under lock and key? Why would yeah. they be? But yeah, anybody could kind of do pretty much anything they could have replaced those bags with bags of acid or something god yeah but it's no different i suppose to somebody going into tesco and contaminating baby food which has happened in the past well that was wasn't it that was the first um episode of paul's show i think that i told you to listen to i'm pretty sure because i remember being like oh my god this guy's really good you need to listen to his show and i'm pretty sure the the Baby Food Poisoner was the first episode I told you to listen to. I think it was. an interesting little was. link there. Blast from the past. So despite the fact that the uh, supplies could have been tampered with by a member of the public, lead detectives did theorise from the very beginning, actually, that the culprit was likely to be a member of staff, someone who knew the hospital and where the insulin was kept, and someone who felt confident enough to contaminate it with little risk of being caught. Yeah, I think you would need to be reasonably... Um, expected to be in this in that store cupboard or you couldn't just be anybody you'd have to have at least some sort of knowledge of and be a part of the the hospital personally I feel like but but also I think you would you'd probably need some medical knowledge as well I think they would have theorized pretty quickly that this is someone with medical knowledge yeah especially to be able to use the syringe and that sort of thing I feel like that kind of also would people, would anybody off the streets be able to do such a neat hole and that sort of thing? So this did narrow things down a bit, but not by a lot because there were over 4,000 staff members stationed at Stepping Hill, as I said earlier. And due to the sheer size of the building, it proved to be extremely difficult to determine who was on duty when the poisonings took place. Nevertheless, they began the painstaking process of going through each staff member of the hospital and trying to determine their movements around the same time that these killings had taken place. Detectives also carried out a historical review of all hyperglycemic incidents at Stepping Hill, examining medical records and preserving blood samples to see which patients had suffered unexpected drops in blood sugar levels. 
They cross-referenced the dates of these incidents with the shift patterns of the hospital staff. This so reminds me of Beverly Alec case. Mm-hmm. And they used this approach to narrow down on potential suspects. This process was, of course, long and complicated, but after some time, their patience and perseverance began to yield some results. And before long, the police had narrowed in on a short list of potential suspects, all of them hospital staff. Meanwhile, chaos reigned at Stepping Hill. The media had gotten the scent of a scandal and the story went public across the nation. The hospital was in meltdown. Rumours of a killer doctor swept across Stockport. Patients were now terrified because this was in the press. They would have known about this. Staff were being scrutinised. The hospital's security protocols were being widely and publicly ridiculed and the entire organisation was beginning to crumble. The situation got so bad that the hospital directors began redirecting emergency patients to other nearby NHS hospitals and the police briefly considered shutting the entire hospital down for fears over the welfare of the public. To make matters worse, whoever was responsible for the poisonings seemed undeterred by the obvious police and media attention as more and more patients continued to fall ill and in some cases die from hyperglycemic attacks. The police were faced with a psychopath on a killing spree who seemed to be hiding in plain sight and relishing it. So Jimmy Savile. On the 20th of July in 2011, much to the sheer relief of everyone involved, the police announced that they had arrested a woman called Rebecca Layton, a 27-year-old registered nurse who worked on Ward A3. Ms Layton had been at the scene of at least one of the contamination cases and her shift pattern placed her in close proximity to several others. Early forensic tests indicated that she had handled an unusually high number of the suspected contaminated saline IV products. Plus, it was found that she had been passed over for promotion several times, which had reportedly left her frustrated. Detectives believed this could have been a plausible motive for the crime. A deeper investigation into Ms Layton's professional conduct revealed that she had previously been reprimanded for stealing medication from the hospital. See, I told you it wasn't just my friend. The day after her arrest, one of her supposed victims, 83-year-old Alfred Weaver, passed away. The pensioner had originally been admitted with breathing difficulties, but had become critically ill after he suffered an unexpected hyperglycemic episode. He was later confirmed as a victim of deliberate poisoning. Ms Layton was subjected to hours and hours of relentless questioning by police, but she staunchly refused to admit any wrongdoing and insisted that she was innocent. Nevertheless, the police felt at that time that they had sufficient evidence to formally charge her with criminal damage and intent to endanger life. Ms Layton was denied bail and then spent six weeks on remand awaiting trial. During this time, the UK media, which had by now gotten hold of the story, as I said, acted as judge, jury and executioner and her name was dragged through the mud and she was branded as the angel of death. As Ms Layton languished in prison, proclaiming her innocence, the Nursing and Midwifery Council opened a fitness to practice investigation and consequently she was suspended from her nursing duties indefinitely pending the outcome of her trial. In the meantime, investigators were tasked with building a case against Ms Layton in order to secure a conviction. All of the supposed evidence that they had so far was purely circumstantial, and this wasn't enough to put her away. They needed to gather evidence that proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Ms Layton was the one responsible for these attacks. This is so interesting. So my gut at the moment is that they've got the wrong person, but I just don't know. Like, God, so all that circumstantial evidence is pointing to her, but they've got nothing specific to tie her no. to these 
Oh my gosh! No, okay. and I, sp- I suppose even thing. I don't know the intricacies of the investigation at this point, but they might have even had her fingerprints on saline bags. But that doesn't mean shit because she'd have been touching those bags. Oh, everybody would have been duties. touching them. Yeah, interesting. I think it was very hard to get specific evidence. Um, and yeah, they had to largely go on circumstantial evidence. And, and it ca- circumstantial evidence is still evidence. It's just that if that's all you've got, yeah, this is so. In- I mean. I'm a bit, I am worried because my gut says that she didn't do it. And now I'm thinking, God, like imagine being in that position where you're then being dragged through the mud in the media and everything. This is horrific if she didn't. I mean, maybe she did and I shall wait and listen like everyone else. But I just don't know. This is horrible. Well, they were unable to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Ms. Layton was responsible for these attacks. The more they scrutinised her actions and movements throughout the days and weeks leading up to the poisonings, the weaker their case against her became. In fact, they discovered more compelling evidence that pertained to her innocence than her guilt. Most notable was the fact that at least one confirmed poisoning fatality had occurred in December 2011, and that was months after she had been dismissed from the hospital, meaning it was almost impossible that she'd been responsible for that. So yeah, in light of that, the police were forced to face up to the very real possibility that they had been focused on the wrong person. Oh, so they'd dismissed her... Um, well, sus- suspended her, I suppose. She'd, and she'd then still someone been, else yeah. had passed away. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's In the exact same circumstances. pretty major, isn't it? Yeah. So the um, the actual real killer could have used this as an opportunity to stop. Yeah. And she would have possibly then gone down for that crime and this killer would have gotten away with it. But of course, as we know, these people can't control those urges. So much to the embarrassment of the detectives who had charged her and the media outlets who had crucified her, charges against Rebecca Layton were dropped officially on the 2nd of September in 2011. But there was still this air of suspicion between then and December, I think, when this further death occurred in similar circumstances. But yeah, they knew now that it definitely couldn't have been her because she wasn't working there then. But how do you come back from that well we'll we'll go on to that because she she didn't come back from it the cps said it was no longer appropriate to continue the case against rebecca layton as evidence that was expected to appear in support of the charges had not become available speaking to the media one of the lead detectives on the case commented the evidence proved not to be the evidence that we expected it to be the fact is rebecca layton didn't do this I mean, she had spent six weeks in prison oh on remand. God. Her name dragged through the press. absolutely abused by people in prison, I should imagine, as well. Yeah, and probably friends, relatives, ex-lovers selling stories. Uh, yeah, it would have. I can't think of anything much worse than, than that for someone who was completely and innocent. Even if your family are saying they're standing by you, you'd still be thinking, well, are they really? What, do they have any doubts? Even the family who do stand right by you yeah. might have some sort of things in their back I of their would, mind where they you? think... Do they are they telling the truth or not? This is horrible. Yeah, I would. I would always stand by a relative, but I would I would very privately be thinking, I'm sure they didn't do this, but maybe they did. Maybe they've had a breakdown of some kind and, and they have done this. So awful, awful what she went through. So Ms. Layton was released without charge, thankfully. Uh, she was never reinstated as a nurse, and she later went on to sue Greater Manchester Police after officers allegedly leaked her name to the media and made public her private Facebook account. Oh my gosh. So she wasn't even reinstated in her job? 
She could I have mean, gone maybe back. Maybe she didn't want to. She to be I honest, don't think she wanted to, Beth, and I don't think she could do it. And I don't no. fucking blame her. No, but I kind of feel like they should reinstate her and then give her a fucking golden handshake and like let her retire on a really decent pension mm. or do something. Like what? Well, I think she got. At least she I, sued the police. Yeah, and I come on to it a bit at the end. I can't remember exactly the amount, but it was only like fifty-six grand or something that she was awarded. But I don't know if there was perhaps an out-of-court settlement with the hospital or. There could have been something, I don't know, there might not have been. And if all she walked away with from this was 56 grand, then shame on the police and shame on the hospital. So with Rebecca Layton now cleared of any wrongdoing, there were fears that the investigation was back to square one. However, the police were quick to announce that she had not been their only suspect and that they were now following up on several very compelling leads that related to other suspects. So that's all right then. So they never 100% thought it was her, but we'll kind of whack her in prison anyway in case. I kind of do understand that, but very unfair. At the same time, the police issued their assurances that they would leave no stone unturned in ensuring that the real culprit would now be caught. By now, officials at Stepping Hill had fiercely ramped up their security protocols surrounding the storage and administration of drugs. However, the twisted mind behind the spate of poisoning simply decided to switch tactics in order to continue with their murderous rampage. In January 2012, the police were alerted towards suspicious activity once again, again on Ward A3, which involved several patients' medical administration charts being tampered with. Now, these charts are a handwritten guide which tell the nurses what quantity of certain drugs should be administered in accordance with what the doctor has prescribed. Senior nurses on Ward A3 soon discovered that several of these charts had been edited so that the dosage of the drugs far exceeded what had been originally prescribed. The killer had done this by using a pen to change numbers, for example turning a 30mg prescribed dosage into an 80mg dosage and a 1.5g dosage into a 7.5g dosage. So kind of easy sort of Mm -hmm. amendments to make, aren't they? But um, yeah, very easy but very effective because very sadly this approach had worked and at least two patients had died by overdose as a direct result before this sabotage was discovered. But surely this is then giving them even more of like a time frame to na- narrow down, maybe yeah. or maybe not. I don't know. No, but this honestly, is, this God, is... God, this is terrifying. This was the killer's undoing, because you're right, it did narrow down things much more. And the killer clearly hadn't considered that their actions had now left them vulnerable. By analysing the falsified medical charts, detectives were able to ascertain a time span between the original legitimate chart and when that had been created to when the overdose of the patient had occurred. And that would have been a much smaller time frame, you see. This helped them to drastically narrow down the list of people who had been on Ward A3 during this time span. And through painstaking research and painstaking process of elimination that involved deep analysis of the movements of around 700 individuals and more than 10,000 hours of CCTV footage, they were able to really hone in on just several people of interest now. God, that is a lot of people going in and out of the ward that are potentially involved like that is a lot isn't it and all of those hours of cctv yeah ten thousand hours of cctv um but there were complications to this the police had previously gotten this wrong and due to their mistakes an innocent woman rebecca layton had spent six weeks in jail so this time they needed to avoid a second big embarrassment at all costs extra diligence and attention to detail was of paramount importance 
they also needed to be sure beyond any doubt that whoever had tampered with the medical charts was the same individual who had also sabotaged the saline bags months prior. Well, I mean, like, I get this and I think it's great that they're doing such a good job, but you should be doing a proper investigation from the very beginning. Oh, that's them told. Auntie yeah. Bethan in the house. I'm, I'm putting on my mum voice and just saying, like, Nurse Layton was languishing in prison for six yeah. weeks because you didn't actually properly cross-reference things. <laughs> didn't look at CCTV. I kind of think, you know, forget the tam- forget the saline bags being tampered with. It doesn't really matter whether these two are related or not. You, you've, you need to kind of sort out this and then yeah. kind of maybe investigate whether the two are linked. You need yeah, to just kind totally of get onto this. Arrest someone just for this section of crime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And potentially you've got a second I mean, how ridiculous would that be? You've got one doing saline solution and one doing Oh my god, Bethan, can you imagine? But that's very <laughs> unlikely. At least if you get this person off the streets and you stop them from the charts issue, you can then investigate while they're arrested and put in jail because you've actually got evidence against them you could then investigate the previous elements yeah of course Mm, interesting the process was a long one and progress was frustratingly slow in this investigation however after some time their patience diligence and hard work began to pay off when they were able to zero in on a single individual who ticked all boxes of suspicion his name was victorino chua a 46-year-old Filipino male nurse who worked on Ward A1. After tracing his movements throughout the crisis, detectives realised that Chua had been present at all of the key times surrounding almost all of the reported incidents. Several of the surviving victims of the poisoning attacks had also confirmed that Chua was present during their initial treatment and that he had handled saline bags shortly before they fell ill. This was damning. On the 5th of January in 2012, police visited Chua at his home and arrested him on suspicion of tampering with medical records. He was then questioned on suspicion of at least three poisoning-related murders and the multiple deliberate poisonings of more than 20 others. After several hours of intense questioning, during which time Chua strenuously denied any involvement in the poisonings, he was initially not charged with any offence and was placed on police bail pending further inquiries, but remained the police's prime suspect. The detectives had a plethora of circumstantial evidence that linked Chua to the crime. However, again, they had nothing concrete and there were still fears that another mistake could be made and the risk of another innocent person being wrongly jailed was very possible. Yeah, and I think, do you know what, that is quite fair because I'm really cross about Nurse Layton. So if that is this so person... mom, hashtag mom vibes cross. <laughs> so cross. But so I cross am. about this. I'm so I get cross. it. <laughs> I, I'm, um, I would so say I I'm think, fucked yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, it's awful. I think... and, and I think you're still thinking these are medical professionals. These are people charged with uh, the public's care. You're still going to be thinking it just can't be. It can't be this person. Yeah, um, and I think but, if you then find out that Nurse Chua isn't the real killer as well, that is two in a row. Like they really need to sort yeah, that shit do this out. in a in a better way. And I think, yeah, keeping him on bail, pending further inquiries, you know, under suspicion of all of this. Yeah. It's still very, very serious. Very serious. Um <sighs> Stop taking the I'm piss sorry, out of me today. Definitely. You're in you're on one, aren't you? You must yeah. have been you must have been bollocking the girls this morning because you're in you're in mom mode. Um, Do you know they've been really good this morning, so I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just you. Maybe you bring this out in me. <laughs> it's I'll tell you why, listener. It's because I've fucked up nearly every single line of this script so far, haven't I, Bethan? 
And I've had he to really retake has. it. I've really fucked this up. It's going to take him ages to edit this episode. And it's still probably going to sound shit. So massive apologies. Um, so, so yeah, the, the evidence was purely circumstantial once again at this point. And there was another risk that came with that because a good defence team could easily argue in court that the mostly elderly victims of these poisonings had actually died of natural causes, or they could simply highlight the fact that all of the incriminating evidence against Tewer was just merely circumstantial. So, it, you know, it really is then for a jury to decide, um, which of course it always is, but a really strong defence, criminal defence, would paint so many doubts in a jury's mind uh, around that. The police needed to be sure that they had the right man and so they took a deep dive into Chua's background and they even sent investigators to his homeland to gather even more information about him. So who was he? Victorino Chua was born on the 30th of October in 1965 in Manila in the Philippines and he was the third of six children to father Angel Noblo Chua Sr who ran a failing computer business and mother Venetia Domingo. Growing up in the Philippines, Chua had a turbulent upbringing and grew to resent his parents, particularly his father who was often away taking care of his three other wives and families. And he would later write in, I know, honestly, I was trying not to judge. It's not acceptable. Um, Well, it's not even that it's not acceptable. How do you find the time to be a father to four different wives and families? um, All that nagging, you know, times four. It's not good, is it? Jesus, Mark. Hashtag go back to the 50s with your humour. I know. So he didn't really have the time because, yeah, he, he Chua's father neglected him and Chua would later comment and write in a letter to himself. He used to write letters to himself, more on that later. Uh, he would later say he left us like animals. And I don't even think you'd leave an animal completely alone as he was left alone in childhood. Um, so when his father died in 1986, the then 21-year-old Chua was overcome not with emotion at watching his father die of a heart attack right in front of him, but with a sense of responsibility at becoming the new head of the family. Under pressure to earn a living and take care of his family, Chua aspired to become a nurse, and that's a highly respected and relatively well-paid profession in the Philippines, unlike here in the UK. Highly respected, but not well-paid. I think that's the issue here, isn't it? True, true. Yeah, it is highly respected, but yeah, the pay is not so good. An investigation into his background whilst living in the Philippines revealed that Chua had indeed studied as a medical nurse at college, but he'd been kicked off the course during his third year for being incompetent in his practices and for failing his exams. By that time, he'd grown into something of a delinquent. Undeterred, Chua simply paid a black market forger to falsify his medical certificate so he could practice as a fully qualified nurse anyway. In 2002, Chua used these falsified documents to secure employment in the UK as a care worker in an old people's home before he successfully got a job as general nurse at Stepping Hill Hospital, and that was in 2009. So only a couple of years. that's scary. Yeah, only a couple of years before these poisonings started. Before starting his employment at the hospital, Chua was subjected to the mandatory background checks by the UK Nursing and Midwifery Council. They were fully convinced by his forged documents and believed that he was a fully qualified nurse. And that's not the first time the NHS has fallen foul of this kind of thing. It happens often. Subsequently, Victorino Chua, a fraud who had no business being in any way involved in the care of vulnerable patients, was approved to practice nursing. These shocking revelations were a source of deep embarrassment to the NHS, as well as the UK Nursing and Midwifery Council, who faced scathing criticism in the press for allowing an imposter into their profession. 
By July 2012, the Greater Manchester Police stated that they were making good progress in their investigation. They also confirmed that so far, a total of 22 people had been deliberately poisoned at Stepping Hill since this whole incident began, and of those 22, seven had sadly died. The Stepping Hill poisoning became a hot topic in the media, and all eyes were on Chua and the police investigation into the killings, because again his name now had been released to the media. Many people expressed their sadness and shock, but there was also disbelief that an NHS medical professional would even be capable of such a viciously cruel and evil act. Victorino Chua, the killer nurse. On the surface, you may think that the idea is appalling and unthinkable, but you'd be wrong. This kind of thing is far more common than anyone is comfortable discussing. So of course we talked about Beverly Allett, but over the last 22 years alone, there have been several high-profile cases which saw seemingly reputable healthcare professionals turn into ruthless killers. On the 31st of January in 2000, Dr Harold Shipman, the UK's most notorious serial killer, was given a whole life prison term after it was discovered that he'd intentionally murdered at least 15 of his elderly patients by administering lethal doses of diamorphine. Um, so he was convicted of 15 murders, but it's, it's very widely believed that he was responsible for many hundreds, wasn't it, Bethan? Because you covered this mm-hmm. in a previous episode. Um, yeah. It's got to be the the worst example, probably in the entire world, of a medical professional turned killer. A few years after this, in 2006, General Nurse Ben Green, I've never heard of this one, uh, who was 25 at the time, was given a minimum jail term of 30 years for killing two patients and almost killing a further 16 by administering them with drugs that triggered respiratory failure. And it's believed that he did this because he was a thrill seeker who enjoyed the buzz of trying to revive them. So I didn't go into that in any more detail, but that is a future case for us, isn't it? In March 2008, Scottish nurse-turned-serial killer Colin Norris was given a minimum 30-year sentence for killing four elderly patients, this time with insulin again, and attempting to kill a further two. And his motive was just baseless. It was around this irrational hatred towards elderly people. And I think, as we've kind of alluded to, perhaps the most worrying thing right now is, are there serial killers operating in our hospitals right now? But there could be. At the moment, the trial of Lucy Letby's in sort of session at the moment. Um, her case is that she's charged with murdering five boys and two girls and attempted murder of a number of babies on a neonatal ward. Um, the trial is supposed to begin in October this year. And I think that her case was last year or the year before um like it came out last year or the year before but it happened in 2015 2016 so it's not this isn't unusual her case is one that's literally going on right now yeah and i I was um i was going to kind of talk a bit about it but this is a long episode as it is so i didn't want to go into that in loads of detail but yeah another very interesting case and we are awaiting the outcome of of that one so um it's that, horrible be very to think that there's so many that I know. we can think of just off the top of our heads in the last 20 years yeah yeah two years after the stepping hill poisonings began the police were still searching endlessly for that one key piece of evidence that could bag a conviction for victorino chua and secure justice for the victims and their families in march 2014 their patience and resilience paid off 
After a search of Victorino Chua's home, the police discovered a lengthy handwritten letter in broken English that Chua had written to himself. In the letter, Chua had sprawled his anger, bitterness and hatred out on paper, and the content painted a dark and disturbing picture of what was really going on in his mind. He expressed his bitterness and anger towards Stepping Hill Hospital, towards his work colleagues and the patients he cared for. He described himself as an angel of death, how original, a nice person who had a devil inside of him, and he also described how capable he was of doing innocent people unspeakable harm. So this letter obviously is damning, isn't it? The letter described his home life in Stockport with his wife Mary Ann and their two daughters, and Chua described how he had deceived his colleagues, friends and neighbours. Quote, They thought I'm a nice person, but there's a devil in me. He goes on to bemoan a succession of health ailments, including a bad back which caused him to be off work for nine months and an injured knee which required surgery and a complaint to the ombudsman and he describes the torment of being prescribed sleeping tablets, antidepressants, painkillers and also the torment of having to undergo counselling for depression. However, in the midst of all of his self-pity, there was a clear undertone of violence and a thinly veiled threat to do some serious damage. In one passage, for example, Chua wrote, Still inside of me, I can feel the anger that any time will explode, just still hanging on, can still control it, but if I will be pushed, they're going to be sorry. Towards the end of the note, he writes, So I'm writing this letter in case something happened to me. My family can continue my case or can tell somebody to look at it and work out how an angel turned to an evil person. The bitter nurse confession. Got lots to tell, but I just take it to my grave. My family will make history here in England. On the face of it, his letter was an outlet for his anger with his life and his struggles with his poor state of mental and physical health. But detectives immediately believed it to be a rare insight into the warped mind of a narcissistic, psychotic murderer. Even though the letter hadn't specifically made a confession that he had been responsible for these poisonings, they felt this was enough to move their prosecution against Tua forward. Stewart tried to convince investigating officers that the letter to himself was a means to vent and help himself cope with the stresses and strains of life, but they were having none of it. The letter was essentially a statement of confession penned by the killer himself. The police were finally sure that they had their man. After the police presented their findings to the CPS, it was agreed that the evidence against Stewart was indeed now compelling enough to warrant a murder trial. So, on the 29th of March in 2014, because this took some time, Victorino Chua was re-arrested and charged with the murders of Tracy Arden, Arnold Lancaster and Alfred Weaver, three perfectly healthy elderly patients who had been killed beyond doubt at the hands of whoever sabotaged those saline treatments. The police now firmly believed that the individual was Victorino Chua. Chua was charged with 31 other offences, including GBH and attempted poisoning, and he was remanded in custody and denied bail. His trial began on the 20th of January in 2015 at Manchester Crown Court. Chua, who pleaded not guilty to all charges, stood accused of committing three counts of murder, 24 counts of attempting to commit grievous, I can never say that, grievous bodily harm with intent, one count of grievous bodily harm with intent, eight counts of attempting to administer poison, and one count of administering poison. I think some of these may have been specimen charges, so they weren't necessarily prosecuting for for all of these patients who came to harm or who died. 
The prosecution alleged that Tua had decided to take out his personal frustrations on patients for reasons truly known only to himself and presented Tua's self-addressed letter as the most damning piece of evidence that he was no nurse but a lying psychopath and a murderer, a man who hated the world and everyone in it and a man who was hell-bent on causing the maximum amount of murder and mayhem possible by targeting vulnerable and defenceless hospital patients. The defence for Tua alleged that the letter had been written during a therapy session on the advice of a counsellor and that it was nothing more than an outlet for his frustrations and that the deaths at Stepping Hill had occurred naturally and were totally unrelated to Tua's letter. However, several medical experts who had been heavily involved in the investigation from the beginning were able to convince a jury that this had not been the case at all. The deaths at Stepping Hill had been no different from any other act of deliberate, premeditated murder. The jury were also shown visual examples of the clear correlations between Chua's working schedule and the poisoning incidents, proving that he had been present at the hospital for the majority of them. On the 18th of May in 2015, five years after this began, and after 11 days of deliberation by the jury, which is a fucking long time. That is a long time. Isn't Do you know it? what? That is major. That does almost like highlight just how much of this was circumstantial yeah 100 percent. that's incredible because and that is a lot of of decision making to have to kind of have on your shoulders massively and it's when, when you deliberate as part of a jury you don't there's no rules you're not kind of told this is how you deliberate you can just go in there and the elect a foreman or foreperson and they can just say what what do you think do you think they're guilty and you can just literally do that you don't need to justify it really you need to agree um, but you don't need to justify why you can just you don't need to pour over the evidence again you can just say having listened to this trial and made notes throughout or you know analyzed all of the evidence that's been presented it's my belief that he's guilty and that's sufficient so 11 days to me says that yeah that there was a lot of to and fro and I think with them as a group to reach a general consensus especially with this many charges as well yeah like which ones do you all agree with and which ones do you have that like reasonable doubt about yeah when I was uh, doing jury duty just when the judge read out the charges against the defendant that took half an hour just to read the charges out because there were so many mm-hmm. in this case so yeah it's, it's kind of similar here there'll, there'll be even more charges and they've got to go through every single one of them and say whether they think he was guilty of them or not so after after these 11 days of deliberation by the jury Victorino Chua was found guilty and convicted on two counts of murder He was found not guilty of murdering Arnold Lancaster, who had been suffering from terminal cancer, but was convicted of attempting to cause him and 20 other patients grievous grievous bodily harm with intent by poisoning. So I think with Arnold Lancaster, because he was terminally ill, they probably couldn't say for definite that this poisoning had killed him. It could have been the cancer, obviously. That's so frustrating. So frustrating. But yeah. I get, like, I get it. They, they couldn't have to be hundred percent sure. Yeah. yeah, they have to make that right decision. But a lot of it is like attempting to cause grievous bodily harm with intent. Well, that's that's basically attempted murder. But I, yeah. I appreciate it's yeah. not because otherwise that's the whole point of having proper legal definitions. But and that's why, as well, the jury are always instructed by the judge. You know, you take out your personal feelings. You look at this with the evidence and fact. Yeah. But it is so easy, isn't it, when you're listening to a case like this to just go, no, come on, like, clearly it was attempted murder. And I think sometimes the judge will give some directions that, 
it doesn't really matter on all of the charges, but these are the most important charges because ultimately with him being found guilty of the two murder charges, that's kind of justice. That's how it's seen that that's justice enough, really. Um, so I'll come on to, to it in a bit more detail, but he was also found guilty of eight offences of unlawfully administering or causing to be taken by another person, any poison or destructive or noxious thing with intent to injure. That's the kind of that makes legal sense. term. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, so there were, yeah, other, other charges that he was found guilty of, particularly around altering of the uh, administering of medication where he'd changed the dosage amounts. Um, so he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 35 years. And that means he'll be 84 before he becomes eligible for parole. So he will very likely die in prison. Um, he's never confessed to his crimes or provided any reason why he went out of his way to attack vulnerable and elderly patients. And he was classified as a psychopath in court, someone who just didn't care for his victims. The conviction and sentence was a huge relief for the police, the hospital staff, the hospital directors and of course the local community who had waited five long dark years to see justice prevail. The reputation of Stepping Hill had suffered immeasurably. With Victorino Chua behind bars where he belonged, everyone was looking forward to finally being able to move on with their lives. In the aftermath of the scandal, the UK Nursing and Midwifery Council were the subject of scathing criticism in the media for falling for Chua's lies and allowing him to operate as a nurse to begin with. In response, the council announced that it was reviewing its intake process for recruiting new nurses and would be undertaking much more rigorous and robust background checks of individual qualifications moving forward, especially those uh, for nurses who had studied overseas. The NHS Foundation also faced tough questioning from the public and the media after allowing Victorino Tua to operate within one of its hospitals and they said in a statement, Our storage of saline and management of prescription charts at the time of the incident was typical of those in other hospitals across the country. Whilst no hospital systems and processes can offer a complete guarantee against the criminal actions of someone who is determined, additional measures are now in place which go beyond standard practice. Rebecca Layton, the nurse who was wrongly accused of this, never did get a job back, as I said, and she did sue Greater Manchester Police. It was actually £53,000 that she was awarded. So, you know, very sad end to her career. And that, yeah, meant that we don't have a nurse that we could have now. Um, So, yeah, that's the end of the case and um, a very troubling case, I think, for anybody that is going into hospital or has relatives going into hospital and I'm you know yeah I'm sure 99.999% of people that work in hospitals are there to care it's a vocation um, but it does show that this can and does very sadly happen albeit rarely I suppose. I guess like the thing that stands out for me in this case is very similar to a lot of the time when we see serial killers is the most vulnerable are going to be the victims because if you're in a position where you have power in some way or you have control in some way, if you're that way inclined, then you're going to aim to attack someone who's at their most vulnerable. And it's just horrendous. That was a horrible, horrible case, Mark. But thank you for sharing that with us because it wasn't one that I was aware of. And it made me really sad thinking of Nurse Layton as well. There's so many cases that we've talked about millions of times before where people are absolutely vilified by the media and prosecuted prior to actually even going to trial, you know, prosecuted by the public. And 
it's just horrendous when that happens. And I don't know if I don't know if uh, Rebecca Layton sued the press, but we've seen with similar, like you say, similar examples, people like Christopher Jeffries, who I think he sued various media and lots of different newspapers and, and received yeah. late hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of compensation. Rightly so, so because have, yeah, yeah, very similar happened to him. So yeah, it's um it's very interesting what you say though about serial killers because they will target the vulnerable because quite often they're killing just because and there is not really much of a motive there. So it doesn't really matter who they kill, they're just going to go for the easy people. And very sadly, uh, a hospital is a perfect environment for that. So hopefully we've not given you nightmares, but um, yeah, it does happen. Okay, well, thank you for listening. And um, hopefully I can edit this nicely so it doesn't sound completely fucked. And uh, yeah, we will see you next week for episode four of season eight. We'll see you then. See you next week, guys. Bye. Bye.